This is the visible hand. My name is Jordi Blanes y Vidal. My guest today is Audinga Valtrunaite, who is an economist at the Research Department of the Bank of Italy, Economics and Law Division. Today we're going to talk about her paper, Women in Economics, the Role of Gender References at Entry in the Profession, joined with Alessandra Casarico and Lucia Rizzica. Audinga, welcome to the podcast. Good morning, and thank you very much for inviting me to be part of this. Audinga, you mentioned in the paper that women represent between 15 to 20% of full professors and around 30% of associate professors in economics. Before we go into the reasons as to why this may be the case, and specifically the reason that you propose in this paper, could you talk us through why is it that there should be more women in the economics profession? That is, why this number inefficiently low or maybe inequitably low? Right. So the phenomena you just described is uh, often named uh, the leaky pipeline. So we see a much higher fraction of women at lower academic ranks. For instance, women, uh, we see gender gap in uh, education has been nearly closed. Women are close to 50% or even more than 50% among the first year students and among bachelor degrees. As we climb higher, women become fewer and fewer. And the question is why? Um, why should we care uh, about the fact that there are few women at the top ranks of academia? Well, we know that there are gender differences in, in preferences that is one reason. And given that education institutions are important in shaping social uh, social outcomes, this is uh, important. The second thing is, is rather more simple. Given that female economists and their talent is an economic resource, which appears to be underutilized, we know that incorporating this component in the production of education, which is, we all would agree, the academic system, would add to the quality of these institutions and ultimately to other uh, economic outcomes, such as aggregate growth or other social outcomes. So this would be the idea that talent is like uniformly distributed, say the average uh, male economist and the average female economist are broadly speaking of equal quality. And if we have less women, that means that there are less talented individuals that uh, somehow have become full professors at the expense of other more talented individuals who do not have uh, the opportunity to, to contribute in the same degree. Right. What about from a equality perspective? Some people argue that uh, if a female full professor can represent role models for others entering the profession. The underrepresentation of women at the top of the hierarchy is also creating a barrier for future talent to emerge as opposed to just present talent. Absolutely. So I absolutely agree both from a more theoretical perspective and also from my personal point of view. It does really matter if one sees these kind of role models. So uh, looking at the more general perspective, we know that, you know, uh, gender gaps have been closed in many spheres, not in all of them. But the progress, especially at the top levels, you can talk about politics, about education or about private sector looking among the managers. The progress at the top has been uh, rather delayed and over time really slowly progressing. And one of the reasons is that uh, we live oftentimes unconsciously holding gender stereotypes and not seeing women on the top actually uh, provides reduced incentives at the very least for female students at undergraduate level, for instance, 
to reach for such careers. And that is, um, that is something which contributes to the slow progress made in these fields. You have like a, an additional experience in, in your paper, which we will touch uh, on in a, in a second. But are there other explanations that have been proposed in general or specifically in the field of academic economics as to why there may be an underrepresentation of women at the top? Right. So the explanations are um, of two types. So maybe one is demand-based in which uh, perhaps women face uh, more obstacles in reaching, uh, in, in, in climbing the career ranks within academia, which is and has been historically a very much male-dominated sphere. The other one is related to the supply side factors, such as lower willingness of women to enter these rather competitive environments in which uh, requirements for the career or the uh, working atmosphere is is rather different. So uh, the distinction in the literature has been made, and uh, and in fact the two may be uh, may be contributing, maybe interacting to contribute to the observed uh, gender gaps. So when when you talk about demand base, uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to like uh, repeat some of the phenomena that refer to this demand base that you have in your paper. So you write there that there have been other works showing, for instance, that teachers give higher grades to male students, that women obtain less recognition for their contribution in cultural research when collaborating with men, that women are held to higher standards in terms of their writing when publishing, that women are cited less, that seminars by female presenters receive harsher questions. In, in some sense, this feels that they underrepresent the explanations for the underrepresentation of women are kind of overdetermined. Like we are definitely not lacking on explanations <laughs> yeah. as to why there is underrepresentation of women. However, the explanation that you have in your paper uh, seems intuitively, at least it makes out of intuitive uh, sense to me. What is the explanation that you study here? Right. So you mentioned a number of spheres for which we know and we have evidence from the economics literature that implicit discrimination or gender stereotypes exist. What we do in this paper, we advance a little bit further and we look at a little more subtle outcome. In particular, we look at how a referral process, in particular, we focus on the junior economics job market, how the referral process in this case differs across genders, that is across male and female job market candidates, and uh, relate that to the subsequent career outcomes of these students. So two things are connected in, to say so, in this paper for the first time. So not only we are showing that there are gender differences and we believe they stem from implicit gender biases, but we also link that to the actual labor market outcome, looking at the job market placements of the students we observe through the job market uh, they've done. So this, we believe, is an important step to take because we link the presence of some rather, let's say, difficult to measure characteristics uh, which uh, describe a different environment or different uh, support women receive while reaching for the career to the actual and really, uh, let's say, tangible uh, career outcome, which I think is important to point out because we want to know, I guess, as economists or as citizens, whether these stereotypes would actually matter for real outcomes. So as you say, let me repeat it here. The paper has two parts. Number one, 
showing that the letters of reference that uh, male and female applicants are received or are written about them differ along a variety of dimensions. One of them, perhaps the most innovative, is the gender stereotypes that are embedded in the text. Second part of the paper, that these things matter for career outcomes, right? In the first part, the content of the letter of reference is on the left-hand side. In the second part, is on the right-hand side of our regression. Right. The paper indeed has two parts. In the first part, I wouldn't maybe say we are actually running a regression. We're just measuring raw and conditional gender gaps. So in fact, the characteristics of the letters in terms of the tone, which is embedded in the letter, turns out to be different for candidates of different genders. And these differences persist even if controlled for a number of their observables. So in that sense, it is the outcome variable with the main purpose that we want to check whether this is determined by some observables or not. In the second part of the paper, which is meant to document the relationship between these and uh, labor market outcomes, we indeed use this letter tone embedded in reference letters written for candidates of different gender into a regression analysis and to see how the two are related. So then going to the first part first, what is the data that you uh, use for this paper? What is the sample and how do you generate your data? That's a big part of a process. This is the question we analyze in this paper is a rather non-standard in economics as it is, again, aimed at measuring something which is hard to measure. So um, as a second, <laughs> that implies that our data is not a standard one and not readily available. So what we did is we build our data set together, starting from application packages submitted by um, economics PhD candidates for their junior economics job market. We obtained these packages from two important institutions hiring internationally. And we obtain essentially all information which candidates submit uh, while applying to jobs, except from their names and surnames naturally. So we work with anonymized application packages which contain candidate CVs, the reference letters they receive and, uh, uh, and their job market paper. From there, we start constructing our data basically by retrieving in some information from their CVs, classifying candidates by gender. We actually receive the data already classified by that because we don't uh, see their names. We also work with their reference letters, distinguishing between the, some more easily observable characteristics of these letters, such as their length, gender, or seniority of advisor who has written the letter, the use of adjectives of different type, and finally, we apply natural language uh, processing methods in order to extract the content of the information regarding the content of these uh, letters. In particular, we will uh, measure how certain features, in particular characteristics which are in psychology described as grindstone features, meaning how hardworking the candidate is, or characteristics related to how outstanding the candidate is, that is, describing their ability, talent, and similar. We look at how these features are, let's say, uh, connected to dimensions regarding the candidate in the letter text. Finally, for the second part of the paper, we will also connect this um, information to the job market placements of these students, which we obtained 
by having uh, LinkedIn, Google Scholar, and um, and Repack platform scraped, uh, searching for these candidates and obtaining information on what placement and in which institution they've obtained, and uh, also looking at some variables of their uh, research productivity. So in terms of generating these data that capture uh, the gender stereotypes of the letters of reference that are written about these candidates, so you mentioned like a words that refer to whether the candidate is uh, creative, innovative, exceptional, outstanding, etc. So that, that you put into the, the basket of exceptional. Then you have other type of a... Uh, uh, words that you put into the basket of uh, willing to put out of effort. Uh, you know, I think you call it grindstone. Grindstone. grindstone That's a term the, from psychology. Yeah. From psychology. <laughs> uh, you have two more, which are agentic, which means that it's very self-confident, and a communal, which means that it's agreeable, caring, warm, kind of like a, maybe a teammate type or something. So this is natural language processing. I find it very difficult to understand. <laughs> Like I really struggled in reading the paper to see what was going on. How is it that you generate all this? Let me, if you don't mind, I describe to you my understanding of how you did it. And I'm sure that it will be wrong. Please correct me. Okay. Whenever it is that I'm not describing it. Okay. Go for it. So you take all the letters that are written about a candidate and you put them together. Okay. Like in a, in a bunch of text that you simplify to keep only the essentials. Maybe you take the prepositions, et cetera, out. Now you have like a bunch of words that refer to a candidate, and then you isolate the set of terms that refer to the candidate. So if the candidate was Jordi, I guess the word Jordi will refer to Jordi, but the word he might also refer, okay? Or him might also refer to, to Jordi. Whereas for you, I guess it will be her or whatever. So these are like maybe pronouns, et cetera. And now you say, I want to figure out what is the position of this word uh, that refers to the candidate in the totality of the text. That is, what type of words in the text the candidate identifier is typically close to. And this is captured by a vector of 100 dimensions that you generate, okay, to see in this bunch of text, where does the word Jordi, he, et cetera, et cetera, fall in, okay? Now you take another word, which is the word exceptional. And then you do the same for this other word, again, captured by the vector of 100 dimensions. And then you say, well, I want to measure how similar the word candidate ID, the pronouns, et cetera, is to the word exceptional. This is the same as studying how similar the first vector of 100 dimensions is to the second vector of 100 dimensions. There is a statistic that, again, I don't understand to measure that similarity, which is the cosine similarity, okay? That, that's fine. A complicated formula, I don't need to know it. If that statistic is higher, then the word Jordi, he, him, etc., typically appears in the same positions in the text as the word exceptional. Then, obviously, exceptional is not the only word that captures these concepts. You maybe use the word outstanding or innovative or create, et cetera, et cetera, okay? You put them all together, you average them out, and that's your measure of how that individual is referred to as exceptional in the text, correct? And then you do the same for the grindstone type of words, like effort, et cetera. Have I described more or less what you do? Yeah, one intuitive way in which I tend to talk to myself also about the word embeddings is trying to imagine a space and it's hard to imagine a 100 dimensional space. So it's even easier just to think about a very simple three dimensional space. 
And you can imagine vectors, words representation in vectors pointing all over everywhere in, in this space. So it happens to be the case that this transformation of words into simpler objects, that is vectors pointing into the spaces, is meaningful because the words which have meaning which is mentioned more often in similar contexts tend to be closer. You can, you can imagine in this three-dimensional space, the word excellent pointing somewhere closer to the word outstanding rather than, uh, and, and imagine the word terrible pointing to a really far uh, direction from the word outstanding. So this is the intuition behind the concept of viscosine similarity and because it essentially captures the angle between these vectors and applies a cosine transformation on that. So if you think about two words of exactly the opposite meaning, they would have, um, they would be two vectors pointing in exactly the opposite directions, uh, forming a 180 uh, degree angle between them with the cosine value minus one. And you could think about two vectors which are completely unrelated, meaning that they kind of never appear in the contexts in together and so on and so forth, they would form a 90 degree angle, which is a zero value of the cosine. And then of course, two vectors, which have very, very similar meaning, they would have an angle of closely zero and would have a value going somewhere to one. So thinking about this cosine similarity, which may have a horrible formula in, the, in these terms, kind of adds a little bit more of this like intuition to, to thinking about, you know, our measure of uh, the word similarity. One thing which we do a little bit differently from what you described is that we basically just take all standout words, such as excellent, brilliant, talented, and so on and so forth. They would be vectors all pointing to the same direction. And we take an average of them to capture, let's say, the average direction to which the vector of these standout words points. And then measure, let's say, this angle and take the measure of cosine similarity uh, between this and the reference to uh, to a single candidate and and all occurrences to which um, in which his or her say ID appears um, in the letter. So that's the measure uh, we are using. This is in fact something which has been for a while in linguistics and has been more recently adopted also in 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 other fields. So. There is, uh, there is really blooming literature of economists using these, these new measures in capture some outcomes, which previously were perhaps more difficult to measure because you can imagine that measuring a sentiment or a tone of, a, of, of language is something um, not really trivial. So you didn't mention it explicitly in describing your data, but you have 8,000 applications. Right. And then you have uh, 25,000 references. And this is because typically there's more than one reference, obviously, per applicant, right? Yeah. So you have, let's say on average, maybe like for every applicant, you have three letters, more or less, but you may also have some referee who has written references for more than one candidate, correct? Correct. You can do this uh, process that we just described at the level of the applicant. Uh, you can do it at the level of the referee. You can do it at the level of the letter as well, because what you are measuring is some bunch of text, you know, a bunch of text. So you can apply to whatever you, you want. Right. This is correct. So we've done in the current version of the paper, it's for at the candidate level to obtain, let's say, candidate specific measures of grindstoneness or standoutness, quote unquote. We've done that also for reference letter writers. 
Why we've done so? Well, it is interesting to observe how candidates, how candidates, how students match to professors. And the one thing which emerges is that there is an assortative matching between female candidates and female professors and male candidates and male professors. So not only that determines to some extent, uh, at the very least, the research topics candidates analyze, but we were thinking that that may even exacerbate gender differences uh, we will observe if there are gender differences across reference letter writer, meaning that female professors and male professor write letters in a different manner. So we've done that also for given professors observing gender differences also there, and we might speak about it later. One thing which we haven't done, uh, we haven't done that at the letter level. So a given candidate would have on average three letters, some more, but not very often, because this is a rather standard application package for candidates and only few of them have four letters, some five, but very rarely. We could do that also, let's say, within candidate. But given that the letter itself is roughly one, two pages, maybe three pages sometimes, um, and that references to candidate himself or herself are rather few, we were afraid that this, uh, let's say, body of text in which to position these vectors in the space would be rather uh, limited. Uh, We have not done that. You just mentioned that there is like a, an increasing trend of economists using this type of natural language processing tools. However, I find them complicated. <laughs> you know, I'm glad that more or less I understood them, but it took me a while. There's like a description of two pages in, in the paper about how they're going on. And I still sometimes feel I don't really know what is going on. So therefore, I wanted to ask you about an alternative way of uh, measuring this. Okay, so imagine that I am writing a letter for a certain candidate and I write the word exceptional and outstanding in the letter, right? Presumably, I think it would be safe to assume that I am referring to the person for whom I am writing the letter of reference and not somebody else, right? Like the word outstanding or exceptional appears there. It's clearly, at least, you know, with a strong probability, referring to the candidate himself or herself. Whereas if I am writing the word uh, self-confident or agreeable, again, they are referring to the candidate. Why not just measure the number of times that these words appear in the text at all? Perhaps divided by the total number of words in the text. You know, that would be so much easier to understand. And, uh, you know, in principle, it seems to me that is as good. Right. So uh, this is another way to go. And this has been used uh, in, I think, in the first applications when text was used in, in economics papers. And I've done it myself in one of my earlier papers. One big difference between the two approaches, so that is like measures based on word count, weighted based by something, and these more complex measures extracted using tools of NLP, is that in particular, in our case, using word embeddings, is that the word count would not capture the context in which the word appears, whereas word embeddings, which we adopt, are able to do that by this relative placement of vectors in the word space. So as you were correctly pointing out, presumably a word outstanding would refer to the candidate, but what the use of word embeddings allows to do is to relax this assumption and compute this distance, let's say, explicitly. The word outstanding, you could think that the 90% of the probability would refer to the candidate. 
it could refer to the paper. But when you think about the about words such as effort, for instance, I was thinking, effort could be something which is discussed in the abstract or in the short description of the paper of many, uh, let's say, apply, applied micro theory papers or in papers which are analyzing workers' effort and in organizational economics, when you talk about effort put in by workers under efficient or inefficient management and so on and so forth. So there is for for many words we are uh, using to categorize our grindstone standards, agentic and communal categories could appear plausibly also in other contexts. So for this reason, we have relied on word embeddings, which actually don't hinge on the assumption that they only refer to the candidates. Although, again, we could we don't do that at the moment, but we could uh, use this as a, as perhaps a robustness checks in the, in the future in the future versions in order to provide some measure which is which is more uh, let's say understandable. Although, at least in my opinion, then you should at least control for the field in which the candidate is doing research and so on and so forth in order to make sure that, you know, references and the use of these words in the paper or in references to the paper do not contaminate, uh, let's say, the relationship. One thing which, for instance, we tried was that we looked at, let's say, the incidence of the words which refer to family duties and looking how often they appear in the text. And actually, they do appear more often in the text for letters for female candidates, but they are basically due to the fact that women more often tend to write papers or about about family economics or in the field of uh, labor and talking about these things. So, so using this data that you create, what, what are the findings that you have in this first part of the paper? The findings, when we compare how intensely candidates of different gender are described in standout and grindstone words are rather striking. They speak very closely to what has been found in applied psychology in other fields. In particular, we do find that female candidates are more often described in terms of grindstone words, that is how hardworking they are, whereas male candidates are more often described in terms of standout words, words that describe their excellence, talent, and high ability. What is interesting, I guess, is that uh, these differences persist even if we account for a large set of observable characteristics. So not only we can account for simple things such as uh, the year of application or in the institution to which the applicant send in their documents, but also we hold if we account for the the ranking of academic institution in which they are obtaining their PhD and several other characteristics. They even hold if we control for the the PhD granting institution fixed effect, which is uh, essentially to say that students from the same uh, school of male and female genders tend to receive letters which are stressing these characteristics to a different extent. So you are describing now the, the results of what is like a regression. In the paper, the, in the version at least that I have, you are doing this by a comparison of means. Yes. But you are saying that you also have like the corresponding regression coefficients in which you put, you know, these like standout grindstone, you know, gender stereotypes, variables on the left-hand side of a regression, and then you control for other things, and then you put the female dummy as the main independent variable of interest. Right. So we have an additional column, perhaps to the draft you've seen, where we have a column which is conditional means where we exactly do this. And uh, and the, the differences 
you know, in the beginning, we spoke about two other characteristics, such as how agentic and how communal candidates are. Gender differences in these two dimensions do not seem to be as strongly pronounced as the former two, that is grindstone and standout characteristics. Doing the analysis of regression in which we compare the incidence of these features by gender accounting for observables actually is helpful and perhaps allows us to focus more on fewer outcomes than um, and obtaining a more focused research question. What is uh, perhaps explaining the fact that agenticness or communalness is are not so clearly evident among um, PhD students is perhaps selection, because again, people of certain types select into, into economics PhDs, and that can be actually, you know, muting some gender differences if more, let's say, assertive or agentic women select into, into these careers, which is uh, rather plausible. Let me talk about, about selection then. In the descriptive uh, statistics, you, you have that the females, uh, female economists are more likely to specialize in fields like applied micro. They t- tend to come from worse institutions. They have less publications. Typically, the candidates don't have many publications, but they're less likely to have published anything. Obviously, even if you control for these observables, there is still the residual uh, concern that there may be, may be some unobservable differences in the quality of the male and female applicants. And just to be clear, this is not because maybe the underlying potential of male and female economies uh, is different, but just because obviously this is the end of a process and maybe a lot of things have happened throughout this process that make these applicants different uh, in terms of the ability to build a CV, but also the the selection at at these different points. There is this residual concern that these uh, words or or variables maybe are capturing something that is uh, inherent about the candidates as opposed to you know, the result of the way that they are uh, seen. So therefore, I was thinking of proposing an alternative estimation strategy to you. So imagine that you were to create these variables at the level of the letter, right? As opposed to the level of the candidate or the referee. Now you will have a 25,000 observations, right? Because there are 25,000 letters. So now you can put these variables on the left-hand side, and then you can put uh, a candidate fixed effect on the right-hand side, and also a referee fixed effect. And now you can have the match between, say, the gender of the candidate and the gender of the referee to see whether, you know, like the appearance of these words is different. Controlling for everything about the candidate depends on the characteristics or the match between the characteristics of the referee and the and the gender of the candidate, namely, most importantly, perhaps, the gender of the referee. This difference in difference approach might allow you to control for many of these unobservables uh, of the candidate. Right. So let me take this from the beginning. Exactly. You are, you are right about one of, let's say, the most, uh, let's say, perhaps evident criticism uh, uh, this um, approach may have is that, you know, these differences in characteristics which are stressed for candidates of different gender may actually represent the reality, meaning that women are putting more effort, but less talented and vice versa for men. So we start from a null hypothesis by which these characteristics are equally distributed by gender. And an important thing to notice is that both of these characteristics, meaning hardworking and the excellent or brilliant in terms of research are positive ones. 
meaning that both of them are really likely to contribute to a successful career or high research productivity. So none of them are signaling low quality um, at the face value. Yeah, there seem to be gender differences in how uh, candidates are described. That's the first thing. But later, we might have time to discuss that. We will see how one category, that is grindstoneness, seems to relate negatively to the career outcomes, while only standoutedness is something which relates positively to the career outcomes. So these things are rather striking because we posit that they might be coming from the implicit gender biases under the null hypothesis. And to the best of my knowledge, not in not even in psycho- applied psychology, there is evidence that women should be more hardworking than men, except from what uh, we tend to think. Then the exercise you described is very interesting. And this is something which we have thought about. We haven't done that. One reason is that it would essentially allow us to, let's say, measure the letter tone within the candidate, meaning holding all of his or her time invariant characteristics constant. Then the variation we obtain from there is the differences in letter tone written by reference letter writers of different gender. That is an interesting thing to analyze. Yet, again, as I mentioned in the very beginning, we haven't done that for the reason is that the text, which actually refers to the candidate in one single letter, may be very, uh, very short, but we can uh, consider that in the future. One thing which we've done, which a bit points to the underlying idea of uh, of your suggestion, is that we've looked at, um, let's say, these measures based on word embeddings of words of different, of, of a cosine similarity uh, between the references to the candidate and grindstone and standard characteristics across referees of different gender. This allows us to measure gender differences across reference letters of different gender, where uh, a rather striking result is that gender differences emerge when writing letters for candidates of different gender only among male reference letter writers. Women are more for grindstone and male are more often standout is only a feature which comes from the letters written by male advisors. And female advisors tend to be gender neutral when using these features. So again, under the null, but these features are uniformly distributed, equally distributed, let's say, across candidates of different gender, this would suggest uh, one um, interesting channel from which these gender differences for male and female candidates may emerge. A couple of comments. The first one is that I was not doubting that the null hypothesis is that these characteristics are equally distributed in the population. I only meant that given that these candidates already have a history of having passed several obstacles and stages and they have self-selected or they have been selected by somebody else and so on, that conditional on all these steps, you know, the, the average uh, male and female may differ. True. That could uh, essentially, that is essential to s- essentially saying that, you know, through four, five, six years of a PhD, many things have happened to the candidates. They have adapted to the environment, which they observe, and perhaps uh, women have been less successful in 
publishing before a paper and having it on their CV because of the characteristics of the PhD program and uh, the academia they observe in the faculty. So even in my personal case, throughout my, all of my academic career, I've seen many more male professors than female professors. I had, I had in mind something along the lines of, you know, the, the standout woman can foresee that their brilliance is not going to be rewarded. I mean, right is to men, whereas the grandad women know that, you know, if they persist, they are going to eventually going to get there relative to men. And I'm not saying that this is particularly plausible, but that one could imagine, uh, you know, certain... One could imagine this. I, 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 can, I can agree uh, because that would be something like complying with gender stereotypes. You think that women are more expected to be more often expected to be hardworking and perhaps caring more about family spheres, while men are more likely to go out in the society and build brilliant ideas and so on and so forth. If that is the case and women behave as more grindstone and men are more often standing out in the academic environment, then there might be something wrong with these beliefs, male and female, especially maybe female, you could think. Uh, students hold. Because what happens to be the case is that when we connect, when we link these standout and grindstone characteristics, we observe that on average, grindstone characteristics will bring a negative value added to, quote, to quote, to the career success uh, of these candidates. So actually being grindstone is something which is, or appearing grindstone is something which does not pay off. While being standout on average pays off. So actually, you know, had students known that they should all appear as as standout. One more detail, which is not in the paper, which is something which we're working now, is even perhaps it's, it's slightly more pessimistic for women because what we've looked at differential returns to grindstone characteristics and differential returns to standout characteristics in terms of labor market success for men and women, that is for male and female students. And it turns out to be the case that while grindstone characteristics do not seem to have gender differences in the returns to the career success, Standout words tend to positively contribute to successful placement for male candidates only, meaning that the uh, gender interaction of the female dummy is negative and essentially overturning the positive sign of uh, the purely standout characteristic, meaning that standout characteristics are sort of zero to women. So that is uh, something to reflect upon, I guess, in terms of students' behavior and how they tend to appear, but that is sometimes hard to control because they are, these are rather character or behavioral characteristics, but also something to reflect upon when thinking of how reference letters should be written, thinking of policy implications, if there are any to be drawn. You are referring now to the second part of the paper. There's this section called affection career outcomes. Would you mind describing in some more detail, how does the sample look, what type of regression you run, and so on and so forth? Right. So, so essentially we work with, um, with over 7,000 candidates for which we are able to compute these word embeddings, measuring how standout or how grindstone their reference letters were, and a number of their observables for each of these candidates, such as uh, the institution they come from, its prestige measured by the ranking, some characteristics of their professors, that is uh, whether they are full professors or not, and how many publications they've written, their gender, so on and so forth. 
letter length and how many letters we have and which field of research uh, their, their, their work is. Then um, the question we actually want to understand is how these features, in particular, the tone of reference letters, how that relates to the career success. Well, measuring the career success after the econ job market is a, not a trivial task. Why is that the case? Because you could imagine that success can be measured across more than one dimension. You could easily imagine at least one. Imagine we don't really care about non-academic positions and we only think that a successful placement is in academia once you completed the PhD. This is something which students often receive a push towards. And then even if you get a placement, even if you restrict your attention to placements in academia, you know that there are different prestige of a position. You can get a postdoc, you can get an assistant professor position, for instance, and also the prestige of institution because you can get a postdoc at the very highest rank institution, but maybe you won't be able to land an assistant professor job in that same institution. So in order to measure the career success, we have information on where these candidates appear to be working at the time uh, when we do the scraping of LinkedIn platform. So we know for a given cohort, which position in which academic or non-academic institution these candidates receive. So our measure of success is having reached the very top, that is uh, having a top 20 institution placement. And by the time we are observing the candidates, having reached the associate professor level, then we run a number of regressions in which first we measure a raw gender gap in this career success, which in line with motivating evidence we discussed in the very beginning about the, the leaky pipeline and lower career success of female economists is uh, negative. That is, we observe a negative gender gap unconditionally. Then in our analysis, we attempt to shed light on the contribution of a bunch of factors in um, explaining this gender gap. Because what we wonder is, you know, to what extent candid observables are responsible for this observed gender gap? Or, for instance, in alternative, to what extent the advisor's characteristics are responsible for this gender gap? Ultimately, and perhaps the most interestingly to us and for the scope of this paper, we look to what extent differences in letter tone, that is grindstoneness and standoutedness of the letters, is able to explain this gender gap. So we find that the extent to which letter tone reduces the observed gender gap is not trivial. They do matter in terms of explaining the raw negative gender gap in career success, and they are able to account for roughly uh, 8 to 9% of that which is not a huge difference, but it is important. It is roughly half of what uh, advisors' characteristics uh, account, for instance. And if you think about this as some subtle, implicit advisor's bias in describing candidates' characters, I believe that it is uh, rather significant. Let me repeat what you said in, in slightly different terms. So you say you have like a, a sample of uh, 7,000 candidates. These are essentially the, the 8,000 candidates in your, in your main sample. Some of them drop because you cannot find information for them or whatever, okay? That's your cross-section, your sample. So then you have a dependent variable, uh, which is being an associate professor at a top 20 institution, okay? Or maybe another dependent variable is being a, an associate professor or being at a top 20 institution. You can disentangle that, but for the sake of the argument, the combination of these two, 
you find that this livelihood is 1.7% for men and 0.8% for women. Okay, so more than twice as large for men as for women, the difference is massive. Obviously, we don't really know what these are different captures. I mean, typically, you know, one natural explanation is some type of discrimination at different stages in the uh, labor market process. So then your next uh, exercise is to say, okay, let us see how much of this uh, differential can be explained. So this uh, point minus 0.9%, okay? Coefficient associated with the female dummy. But how much that reduces when we control for a bunch of things that were uh, there as part of the initial application package that the candidates had, okay? So for instance, who was uh, the referee? Um, did they have a male or female referee? Or how long was the letter? But maybe most importantly, what was the tone of the letter as captured by your grindstone versus standout thing? And then you see that this uh, row gap decreases as you control for more, you know, for, for some of these things. So I have a, a couple of questions uh, with respect to this process. The first one is kind of like, a, I guess, a really mechanical question, which is, these coefficients do reduce, but are they statistically different from each other? Because if the reduction is not very big, it could be that, you know, controlling for some things maybe makes the coefficient slightly smaller, but not in a way that is statistically significant. The second question is how to interpret the decrease of the row gap. And this is uh, for the following reason. So, so imagine that we think about the likelihood of becoming an associate professor, okay? Obviously this happens, I think you say 12 years later, right? So, or less. More or less or, or less, okay? At most, like at most. At, uh, most, at most, okay? So by then the, the candidates have a published or not, they have been good citizens in institutions or not, they have taught well or not, they have like really a lot of information about them that these promotion committees are going to take into account. Absolutely. I, I don't really think that these promotion committees are reading the initial letters that the candidates have like, uh, you know, let's say seven years earlier, right? And then looking at the stereotypes and being affected by the stereotypes in the language. So then, therefore, my question is, what, how do we interpret the fact that the coefficients go down? Because the interpretation, I think, is unlikely to be causal. It's not that, it's not that we believe that, that these uh, uh, stereotypes are causing the lower likelihood of promotion. Are they proxying for how these candidates are broadly seen by the colleagues? you know, throughout this uh, very long journey of the, of the application, of the promotion process, sorry, is it that they are, you know, like correlated with some other type of information that fairly or most likely unfairly is being seen about, the, uh, about these uh, individuals? Right. So, uh, so the, the case you described is the one which is, let's say, most acute for um, our early cohorts, that is the, in the beginning of our sample. Because, of course, many years, around 10, have passed from the moment the letters were written and, at, and to the moment when we measure their career success. Um, yet, we see that, you know, conditional on the cohort, career achievement is different across genders. So even, the, you know, candidates of 2010 
in 2021 appear to be at different career success levels. Why is that the case? Uh, throughout this period of time, many things have could have happened, as you uh, correctly point out. It could be discrimination, it could be different uh, research productivity, it could be uh, different uh, family duties, and so on and so forth. What we keep in mind when we think about these very early candidates is that we believe that this reference letter tone carries uh, some value uh, to the later career placement through the first uh, job market placement. And we tend to see these results. This assumption becomes less and less critical once we get uh, to our later years in the sample in which we observe candidates which are which were in the job market just a couple of years ago where their current placement is virtually their first placement. But I would agree with your concern. What we are working now at the moment are two things in order to tackle this concern. The most, I guess, interesting one is we are almost done through collecting the first uh, placement after the job market these candidates have done. So in these regressions, we would replace career success as measured at the moment we scraped LinkedIn in 2021 at some uh, point with the scraping done in the past months, literally in summer 2022, uh, but actually searching also for the year of a placement and extracting information on the first post job market placement. So essentially there we would be observing actually the, a more direct relationship between reference letters, which these candidates sent out uniformly to all the institutions and the prestige of the institution they were placed at. So that would be, let's say, circumventing the more, uh, let's say, complex uh, promotion decisions, which are affected by many, many factors throughout the time which elapses from the early job market in 2010, 11, 12, or so on and so forth, and the placement we observe in 2021. Thank you, Audinga, for coming to the podcast. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure. Please visit our website, thevisiblehand.uk, for links to any other papers that we may have discussed. Introductory music and logo by Aitana Blanesiso, episode produced by Anderson Park.